welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 64 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast. We come out every other Thursday, except except for recently, Scott. We've been having uh, shows coming out every other week, it seems, with, with all the side quests. My name's Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And thanks a bunch for having us be part of your day today. Scott, what's going on? Oh, it's just that wonderful time of year whenever little bits of nature go floating through the skies and goes around and they proliferate all through the land. And then they decide like, hey, let's go visit Scott in his nose, in his eyes, in his head and just beat him up with some allergies. So it's been absolutely glorious. (laughs) So we're recording with you all hopped up on Benadryl, huh? (laughs) <laughs> oh, for the love of God, I hate allergies. But yes, yes, no, things are going well. I actually have a week off from traveling for work, so Ooh. it's kind of nice being home. Dude, you uh, came back but- from Origins and immediately had to like go to Philadelphia. You've been on the yes. road for like three weeks now. Yes, I was at Origins, then came home, and then went to Philadelphia, then came home, and then went to Butler for a wedding I was officiating, Ooh. then went to Erie for a weekend, and then now I'm actually <laughs> home enjoying just time quiet time and everything so it's it's good but then whenever you have quiet time at home and you've been away hey what do you do wallpaper a kitchen <laughs> Woo! well adventures we got a big episode today our recent plays are going to include fired up cult of the deep coloma and suro we've got our top 100 update we're reviewing 8-bit breakdown for veiled fate our time warp we're going to look back on last year's review game which was raiders of the north sea our discussion topic going to be a bit about gaming with a significant other who's not that enthusiastic about gaming so we got a lot to talk about today, Scott. Yeah, that topic hits kind of close to me here. But likewise. Anyway, hey, <laughs> adventurers, go back. Last week's side quest, we had an origins wrap up. Oh, uh, big I've been seeing a lot of things on YouTube, a lot of things coming out on podcasts and everything. Everyone's just winding up everything that they did at Origins. It was quite a bit smaller, but still, it was so much fun and so great to get out, see people, play games, and just get that con experience in again. And a ton of audio in that episode. If you couldn't make it to Origins or you want to relive the weekend, you can hear from the publishers direct from the source, hear about what they got coming up and what's on the horizon. There's a lot of good stuff there. What else you got, Uh, Scott? Well, we talked about Leviathan Wilds. Mm. The Kickstarter actually has a date, and it's coming out July 12th. Excellent. So definitely mark that down to get your announcements whenever it comes out. Now, another one I didn't get to check out at Origins, but you did, Mm -hmm. was Septima. Septima. Uh, I think that's Septima. Well, Septima sounds more mysterious, (laughs) since it is talking about witches. But Patrick talked about it. You did it last uh, episode. Just a little touch on it on the Meeples and Monsters episode. It is uh, Mind Clash Games, and they always come out with something amazing. Oh, yeah. Finally, another thing You got more? (laughs) I got more. (laughs) All right, all right. Shut up and sit in the corner, Patrick. I'm taking over right now. Clash of Galliforms is live. You had talked about this back in episode 48. 
And it is such an incredible looking game. Yeah, I like uh, the idea of riding these giant bir- So, like, your tribes have kind of domesticated these giant birds that occupy the land. I, I Yes. You have to look at the Kickstarter to get a little bit more of an impression of what's going on in this game. But I really hope this funds. I'm a backer. I want to play it. It gives me, like, shades of scythe. Kind of like oh, scythe okay. meets giant birds. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, you can put all sorts of weird things together here and just have a great time with these games. It is a great time to be a hobby gamer. Absolutely. Now, speaking of putting weird things together, one of the things that we thought whenever we started this podcast would be sort of a, I don't want to, maybe a mainstay of the show would be uh, having folks submitting their audio adventures we're about halfway through our second year here. We're assessing the concept of having listener-submitted audio. We really love when a listener shares their thoughts on a game, and it's a means of interacting with a podcast, which I don't know of any other podcasts that do that. This is something that whenever you're sitting there in a game shop and you're talking to somebody and you can't wait to get your little two cents in, hey, guess what? We're letting you get your two cents in here. And you know what? What the hell? I'm going to throw it out in the wind here. We're gonna give you, let you get your nickel in, okay? Uh huh. You <laughs> that can is get more your than full two cents. five cents in. Yes. Well, I think originally we thought, you know, what, if we have a review, say today when we talk about Veiled Fate, if somebody's sitting in their car listening, going, "Oh no, they totally missed the ball," that's your chance to submit audio and say, "When you guys talked about this, did you cons?" I really think that blah blah and sort of script it out and actually have a little portion of the show be all for you and people can hear a different perspective on a game, sort of like a community based show. That was that was one of our main things. But honestly, mm-hmm. depending on the next six months, we may or may not scrap this concept from the show entirely. I mean, we don't want to, but at this point it does feel kind of tacked on if it's not utilized. Originally, I think we thought this was going to be a big differentiator. I mean, you have hundreds of choices, right, for whatever podcast you want to get your gaming fix from. And we thought maybe being able to interact with the show this way would be cool and different. Like if you could listen to the show and then submit your thoughts on the same game or or submit a game that you've been playing lately. Tell us a little bit about it. That'd be kind of neat, but to this point, it's not being used as much as we might have initially hoped. So we're going to mm-hmm. assess that over the next six months. If things start pouring in and people start showing some support for it, we're going to keep it. Otherwise, you know, if it's not popular, then you know, folks are voting with their actions, I guess. Yeah, yeah something like that, yes. But then again, I mean, you stop and think about it. They don't fill in their little audio or anything like that. You got to listen to more of us. We want to hear you guys. Give us what your topics are. Let us know what you think we did wrong. Or, hey, maybe there's something that we didn't appreciate in a game that you love. Mm -hmm. Let us know because we love to go back and look at games and figure out, wait, you're right. I didn't take a look at it that way. That makes it that much more special. I mean, I look at going back to one of our older games here, Red Rising. Whenever we first played it, I didn't really care for it. And then I started hearing little things about it, people liking it. Mm-hmm. I turned around. I bought the game. I really enjoy it now. I, I've learned to appreciate it. So, yeah, give us your opinion. Tell us what you like that's different than us. And it may help us or other listeners take a look at a game in a new light and learn to love it the way you do. 
Yeah, we like the idea of, you know, sitting around at the shop after playing a game and just sort of chit-chatting and BSing about a game. And that's really what this is. This is an extension of the hobby for us. And we like to think that it is for you listeners as well. So please do join us. We want to talk some games. You want to kick us off? All right. So, yes, let's go to Recent Adventures. Yes. When I was at Origins, I got to see a bunch of people that I've heard their channels. I've seen them on things. Lo and behold, I ran into a friend, Will Brown. Well, Will is a bad influence on me because he told me to bring a certain nice brown liquid with me. You're still on this scotch. Yes, yes, yes. So I did. I brought it with me. Then one night he said, hey, we're celebrating. Bring that scotch with you. I'm like, all right. This ended up being about 11 o'clock we started playing, and we were celebrating with scotch. That being said, we got a chance to play Coloma. This is designed by Johnny Pack, published by Final Frontier Games. First of all, he had me at Rondell. Whenever that word comes out, I'm in. I always love anything with Rondell. So, Kalua is a game based upon one of the first gold rushes in the Wild West. You'll play as a villager of the town and have many different ways of gaining points. Each turn, you will select a different action that matches on the rondelle. It could be space one, gain some dudes. And yes, they are called dudes. dudes. Yes. Uh, End of question. Even the girls. They're dudes. Yes. These can be used for a number of actions. Now, site number two, you can gather some gold. Pretty Mm self-explanatory. Site three, draw two cards. Site four, gain two bucks. Finally, site five, pay one gold. Just give yourself three points. Now, this is all on the rondelle. So there are five different areas. There are five different areas around the board. So you are going on to the rondelle and picking an action. Now, simultaneously, players secretly decide where they're going to place their meeple. Each space will have an action that will happen plus a secondary action that will happen. All right. But if a majority of players pick the same site, that site goes bust, and you only get the main action. So you oh. don't get the extra bit. To make things even riskier, you have Buster. Yes. Buster? Buster busts things up. Yes. They, they really <laughs> okay. worked hard on some of these names here. Yeah, very creative. <laughs> this is an extra meeple that can gum up the works. You could be on a spot with one other person, and you don't trigger a bust. But then along comes Buster. You flip over a card. Well, Buster's going to be visiting you. That's that one extra person that busts that section. So Too you many only dudes get on the one main. area. Okay, exactly. cool, cool. You got like so, the extra player, the game influence. I like exactly. it. Exactly. So each turn, the rondelle will turn, and that action will not be available. Turn one, site one, turn two, site two, and so on and so forth. There's a lot going on in this game, but I want to give just a quick overview. The first site, you're able to activate your cards that you have a shovel on them. So you're building up your town, so you have little things where you have shovels on them. That might allow you to get a gold. It might allow give you some money. Site two will allow you to survey a river or bridge. You've got to reallocate where the rivers are going to go. You have to build bridges. This is a main way of getting victory points. Mm-hmm. Site 3 allows you to build a town building. Whenever I said about shovel actions, whenever it comes up, well, this is where you get those special actions that will happen. You might be able to build tents. You might be able to send your explorers out into the Wild West and search places out there. Site 4 allows you to set off for adventure in the Wild West. 
Now, right. there's a map that you can move wagons all across and get bonuses that will help your end game. Site 5, this is a fun one, is standing up for your town or settling down your roots on a rondelle. So you have outlaws and bandits that are coming into your town. Well, you're going to take some of your dudes and set them up there and fight off the outlaws that are coming in. All in all, we had a great time playing this. There's a lot of things going on. And as I said, full disclosure, this was 11 o'clock and Scotch was involved. So it's <laughs> it's a little blurry, but I had, did have a great time. I do remember one thing. It was, it was really funny. I'm looking at the board and I'm staring at the one corner of it. And I look at Will and I'm like, Will, is this supposed to be Doc Brown and Marty McFly? Yes, yes, it oh, is. Found it a was just on the enough board. of it on there. He goes, <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard is here somewhere on a card or on the board or somewhere. He's I somewhere. you got to find that. it. Overall, at Coloma, it was a great time. Just a lot of things going on that work really well together. So was this just you and Will playing, or did you have a third or fourth player? We had a third player. Uh, Evan was with us. We had three people playing. It was a great time. How about components? I'm looking at some pictures as you're talking about this, and I see some people, looks like they decked their game out. They got like little gold nuggets, and I'm seeing screen-printed meeples. I'm assuming you guys played a, a basic version of the game. Tell us what we can expect in that box. Well, in the box, you will have different wagons that you'll be throwing gold into. You have the screen-printed meeples. You have basic meeples that we played. We just played the basic copy out of the game library at Origins. Mm -hmm. But still, there's a lot of stuff in this. And there are magnets. Ooh. I love the magnets because that there, you're going to be, the rondelle is magnetized, so it's not going to be sliding all over the place. Makes it very simple to play. You each have a little spinner where you decide where you're going to go on the rondelle. Mm -hmm. You secretly flip it over and everyone sees where everyone's going to be going. So there's a lot of stuff going on here as far as resource management, secret decisions you're going to be doing. But everything flows nice and smooth, and it becomes to be a very elegant game. Excellent. Excellent. Now, let me ask you one more question. Yes. Having played it at Origins, is it on your wish list now? I don't think it's on my wish list, but it's one that I would definitely play. If anyone said, hey, you want to play Coloma? I would definitely jump on it. Being in my collection, I don't know if it would actually be there. Okay. Okay. So a soft, soft recommendation. Yes, Enjoyable yes. time. Brave adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP, L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot. Get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. Nah, I was getting fired up to play a game called Fired Up. And this comes from Draw Lab Entertainment in 2021, designed by Georgios Eleftheriadis and yes. Theophilos Kotrubis. They sent me cookies one time. They were <laughs> the... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Scott Fired Up's two to five player game. It plays in about an hour. It's an arena combat game, but not one where you're a participant, but instead you're betting on fighters to pull off various moves and knock each other out. So you start by picking five fighters to toss into the arena. It's set up. 
Each one gets its own spot and their bases, which actually have a little arrow on the bottom, they point to the left. And throughout the game, you're going to be moving that base and shifting who they're going to be attacking that turn. But otherwise, they're stationary in their spot in the arena. The fighters each have a card that shows their activations, their morale, their special ability, all, all that sort of stuff. And cool thing, they're all different. Okay. So if we're not fighters in the arena, what exactly are we doing? Okay, players draw four cards each round, and they're going to pick two that they want to see happen. And the cards have an allotment of points on them if the criteria is met. But what's cool is that just about all of them have several layers of points. Like, I might have a card that says, if someone rolled a fail on two dice, I get four points. If that fight resolved with only two or fewer damage, I get six points. So basically, from those four cards, you're looking to find two of them that you think you can influence having the things on it happen. That's how you're scoring points in the game. Okay. Next up, in turn order, each player is going to roll six influence dice. You pick one or more, showing the same action, and you execute just that action. And then play is going to pass. When it comes back to you, you look at your remaining dice, and you choose again until you're out of dice to use, and then you pass. You're basically done for the round. Mm -hmm. Dice are going to do a number of things when you place them on a fighter. They can affect the morale, the repositioning, the attack power, the defense, etc., and then finally, on your turn, you can place a bet on a fighter using a social die, the social symbol on a die. Like, if I think a fighter is going to be the first one to be knocked out, I can place my bet card on that fighter and on a betting chart off to the side to note as much, and I'll get more points for being the first to have bet. So you don't really points. believe in Stanley, then? <laughs> I don't even get that reference, Scott. Well, you just figure Stanley can't be a really strong fighter. So you're like, Stanley... Uh, yeah, I don't believe in you, so I'm going to bet that you're going to lose. Well, first of all, his name is Stanley. How many buff dudes do you know named Stanley? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> After all the die rolling and player turns are complete, we get on to some fighting. And you just start with the fighter that has the highest speed stat, and you roll three attack dice. Then the defender is going to roll three defense dice. And remember, no one actively controls these fighters, so it doesn't really matter who's rolling the dice. It's just a mechanism that you use to carry out the combat in the arena. Mm -hmm. This is going to go on for four rounds, each round getting two more of those criteria cards, like, oh, I think I'm going to be able to mega punch with this guy, or I think this person's going to take at least two damage this round and score some points that way. Plus, you have your endgame betting cards to score some points. And at the end of the fourth round, high score wins the game. All right, so uh, this sounds like it could be a rather dull-looking game with just a bunch of dice. What were the art and components like? Did it really draw you into it? Oh, the box cover did. box cover looks cool as hell, but I'm telling you what, it's a little bit disconnected from the game. It okay. doesn't scream arena combat. Uh, <laughs> the art on the cards is just fine. You know, It's kind of colorful, kind of cartoony. It didn't blow me away, but that's okay. Art is subjective. Minis aren't anything super exciting, but they are easy to tell apart. And the mm -hmm. pointed bases, they're functional in the game. Game Tree has slots available for expansion fighters, too, if you opt to oh, buy nice. them. So there's like, I want to say six that come with the main game. Six or seven, but there's slots for ten in there. I don't know how I feel about that because I always feel like, well, now I have to get the expansion. It's <laughs> like it's a marketing <laughs> ploy. But on the other hand, we've all been there where you get an expansion and it doesn't fit into your main box. It's just like, yes. oh, man, this takes up too much space. Components, art and components, pretty good. All right. Now, I, I'm kind of getting that, okay, this don't is. Don't say it. <laughs> it, it's a has-been type of game I thought you were going to say you were getting fired up. Uh, no, 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 no. So what did you think of the game? Did you have a good time? Um, You know what, Scott? I can't say that I loved it, unfortunately. F fired Up has a lot of good ideas in it. 
Uh, when I heard of the game, I thought that it's going to play like Camel Up on steroids. That, that was right. my thought. Okay, it's Camel Up, but it's arena combat. This is going to be awesome. You bet on these fighters and you see all kinds of crazy things going on in the arena. In execution, though, I think maybe my problem with it is that it tries to do a little bit too much. Okay. Uh, the main issue here is that like, I don't feel like I have much agency in the game. I get to keep those two cards each turn, and I hope to score them, but there's so little that you can actually do to make it happen. Further, you don't know what the hell anyone else is trying to do to achieve their cards either. Mm. And then you roll dice, desperately trying to influence fighters in a way that's going to help you meet these goals that you have on your card. Uh, okay, got it. Then you roll for combat. So, dude, Ooh. I could have a fighter with, like, huge morale on full blast attack mode. So I've literally min-maxed the round so that I can score my objective card. Then the attack roll comes up with just one hit, which is promptly defended, rendering all my play this round null and void. You know, that can happen. <laughs> on the flip side, someone could have a card that wants to have their defender stave off this huge attack. And that might have done nothing to influence it in any way. But the result of the roll magically made their point card not only trigger, but also hit that second and third level bonus. So even though you have a little bit of agency with the Yahtzee style dice rolling, it still feels a little disconnected in that everything's resolved through a random dice roll. There's a good bit of iconography going on here too, and plenty of actions you can take with your dice, but in its execution, there just wasn't a stand-up, laugh-out-loud moment or like a pump-that-fist. You know my thing about games that make us feel powerful and clever? Right. It just wasn't happening here. Ah, uh, that's a shame there. It sounds like it wasn't really for you, but who would this game be good for? Uh, I mean, I thought maybe it'd stay in the collection as like a beer and pretzels game. Uh-huh. It's got it. It's got enough bells and whistles attached. I don't think it's going to be easy enough to just sit down with someone and they're going to know what they're doing within a round. Okay. Uh, there's going to be regular questions about what does morale mean again? What does this symbol mean again? I think that if the arena combat, like kind of random resolution is, is going to grab a hold of you, give it a try. You know, you might find that I'm just crazy talking, but for me, I think the lack of player agency keeps me from getting fired up. Oh. fired up it just wasn't wasn't for me all right so that was fired up mm -hmm. okay so it didn't really fire patrick up no it didn't but i'll tell you what's got a lot of people fired up is a game called radlands dude i got to play a game called journey into the beyond with designer liam burns and i'm hoping to have mm -hmm. an adventure on the horizon in the very near future but liam said you know what i really like this idea of submitting audio i want to talk about radlands what do you say we listen oh. in to liam get his thoughts on it that sounds good. Right from the very first game, Daniel Peachnik's neon post-apocalyptic dual card game Radlands fishhooked my attention and demanded for another play. In fact, I find it almost impossible to play only one game of Radlands in a sitting. Coming from a background of TCGs before transitioning to more civilized living card games, I'm certainly no stranger to the concepts which traditionally come with the card game territory. Radlands takes these conventions, climbs up on the hood of the moving vehicle, and manually spits nitrous into the intake while straddling the engine. The game at its core is very simple. Each player controls three columns, each hosting a camp card. Protect these camp cards by playing down people cards in the same column. Activate your people and camps to damage your opponent's columns. If you deal damage to an unprotected column, you damage their camp card directly. Destroy all three of your opponent camps before they destroy yours, and you claim sovereignty over the Outlands. Players take turns spending their water, actions, to pay for their people, effects, and event cards. Think of these event cards as a delayed return on investment. 
After a certain amount of turns go by, as determined by the card, an effect will resolve, varying from mildly annoying to board-wipingly devastating. These events function as kind of the Sword of Damocles for your opponent, forcing them to change their play lest they be consumed by a famine, for example. If you couldn't be bothered to pay for the price of one of your people or event cards, you can also junk them from your hand as a one-time boosting effect. Being able to determine when it's better to play a card or to junk it separates the exterminators from the punks of the wasteland. Now, camp cards are more than just their soft underbelly in need of protection from your opponent's onslaught of various hooligans. They are the game's largest contributor to the direction of playstyle in a particular game will have. At the start of each game, except for your very first game, both players take six camp cards from the deck, choosing three of them to form their base of operations. These camp choices can completely change the pace of the game, looking at you, Scud Missile, and often force your opponent to rethink their strategy right from the moment the camps are revealed. That being said, camps don't completely define your playstyle either. This becomes glaringly obvious when you're teaching new players the game, as the rulebook has a specific recommended starting camp setup first time playing the game. Watching brand new players make completely different decisions based on what should be almost identical information is what's really sold me on the replayability of this game. Now, I know I've already spent too long discussing Radland's finer details, but I do want to take a moment to cover some of my criticism for the game, as well as a quick glimpse of what I'm hoping to see from future installments from our dear friends over at Roxley Games. My main grudge against the game is also what a lot of people enjoy most about it, something other cards games refer to as the art of the top deck. Because players draw cards from the same deck, card synergies are very generic. Most functions autonomously, which is for a reason, you wouldn't want to have a dedicated two or three card combo in a game where your opponent has an equal chance to draw the remaining pieces that you need. However, there are quite a few situations that arrive when you're staring across the wasteland at your opponent's raiders, barreling down the atomic planes, ready to obliterate your final camp. You know exactly what type of effect you need in order to pull off the win, if only you can draw it. Here we go, draw for turn, and... Uh, nope, I guess I lose. These moments, although insanely climactic, make the game feel closer to drafting Magic the Gathering versus the increased agency that comes from a dedicated constructed deck. I would like to see more interaction with the discard pile, not only allowing players more say in what happens during their turn, but also to make my opponent think twice about which cards they're junking. I'm sure there's a good reason there isn't any sort of discord interaction, the designers have a very impressive pedigree after all, but I would just like to see more opportunities for some complex strategies. Overall, Radlands is quickly becoming my go-to game to teach new friends. It's easy to teach, it's speedy delivery, and satisfying windup makes for an excellent litmus test for other games we might enjoy together. I've had games where I've set up, taught, played, and then packed up again in 25 minutes flat. Whether you're looking for a quick pick-me-up in between your game or a fast-paced dedicated card battler you can play over and over again, you definitely want to give Radlands a look. Hey, thanks, Liam, for sharing your thoughts on Radlands. And unfortunately, Scott, <laughs> maybe with the listener submitted audio, we're finding that other people do this better than we do. <laughs> uh, I may be looking for a new job. Have you played yet? No, I have not. I know that it was really big at PAX Unplugged when we saw it last year, mm -hmm. but I have not had a chance to play it, but looking forward to it. Likewise, haven't gotten this one to the table. No, I mean, I don't own it, so that's part of the reason, but man, I'd be up for giving this thing a play. The art looks good. The card play sounds like a lot of fun. Maybe we'll get yes. that one on our short list. Oh my, yes, definitely. So you got a game on the list that has some news from a Kickstarter recently, and I'll be curious to see if you mention that in your breakdown of Soro. Tell us about it. Well, yes, Soro had a resurgence here with their big Kickstarter coming up. Now, granted, I will say that is just freaking gorgeous. Uh, it is. The wood box, the stones, everything about it. It does have the look of a classic game. 
but my wallet will not support it for being said classic game. <laughs> I will go for the old plastic and cardboard copy. This is, a, this is a good old one. I tell you what, but, tell us about Suro, and then we'll yes. break down some of the costs of that Kickstarter. So, Suro, it was designed by Tom McMurchie. McMurchie, just fun saying. McMurchie. And published by Calliope Games. Now, in my journeys here, traveling around with work and everything, I get a chance to look out and try and find new game stores, game cafes, things like that. Mm -hmm. While in Philadelphia, I got a chance to go to Queen and Rook Game Cafe. Yeah. Wonderful place. If you get a chance, definitely check it out there. So I had some of my coworkers there, and they aren't that big into gaming, but they'll give things a try. So I'm looking at the wall, and I saw Suro, and I figured... This is a nice, easy one to get people into playing. The rules are extremely simple. Mm -hmm. So, hey, let's give it a try. You have a board. It has 36 squares on it. Okay, right there, you have 50% of the game. Yep. <laughs> the other part is you also have a hand of three tiles with lines on them. Now, these lines are all sorts of squiggles. They go all over the place from one side of the board to the other side of the board. So, so far, yeah, this sounds like a winner of a game. But Wait, because of squiggles on the tiles? Well, I mean, hey, I'm just saying um, sarcastically ah, oh, that there's oh, squiggles on a board and you have 36 squares. That's okay. it. So, the first player, you place a tile on the board. You place your stone, your, your player marker, on one end of that tile and you follow that squiggled line to the end of it. The idea of the game is to be the last stone on the board. Mm -hmm. As players place tiles on the board, more and more journeys will show up. Each time you have a tile placed in front of you, you move your stone to the end of Gotta the tile. Gotta move that stone, yeah. Now, this could either lead you to a safe spot, or one of the bad things here, it could define your defeat as you're gently guided off the board. One of the best things of this game is you can play up to, I believe it's eight people on mm -hmm. this so it can be very chaotic. One of the craziest things is whenever you place that one tile that connects a couple other tiles, that will cause a chain reaction where all the tiles then are forced to follow their squiggles to the very end where they either lead them all off the table or they run into each other and then are eliminated from the They board. explode! Yes, it's a very <laughs> simple game. Lots of visual planning to see where your places will go once tiles are placed, this is not a heavy strategic game. Yes, there is strategy involved with it, but it's not going to be one that you're going to be weighed down by heavy decisions. No, you got three tiles, pick the optimal one, and then draw a exactly. new for next turn. Pretty simple, yeah. So this was especially fun as we were at a game cafe, and I had a chance to introduce it to my coworkers. It definitely a great game to introduce people, a great icebreaker, Something very, very simple for people that aren't used to playing board games to get into and play. So, Soro, that will always have a place in my library. Yeah, we'll call it maybe a modern classic for these light entry level, anyone can play kind of like you could play this with your mom after dinner and it, it's no big deal. I actually bought it for my nephews, uh, one of my nephews for their birthday. There you go. And taught them how to play immediately. And, of course, his mother liked it because there aren't that many rules. 
Right, right. Now, this is a game that I want to say you could probably get it at Barnes and Noble or get it on Amazon for what, 20 bucks, 15, 20 bucks. And quite frankly, it's a well produced game. Just the basic mm-hmm. version. It's, it's even got that little piece of like tissue paper with like oh, yes, an yes. engraving on it, like covering the, I don't know what that is. It's, it's like the napkin, the napkin protecting the gamers. <laughs> it's the rice paper that Grasshopper was supposed to walk on on Kung Fu. It's got a quality production for a relatively cheap price. You could probably find this thing used for eight or ten bucks. They had a Kickstarter up for what you were describing, this wooden box and whatnot. They called it the Heirloom Edition. This is – okay, gamers, let's start right here. If you think anybody wants your games, <laughs> if you think you got a family member that's going to be like, oh, yeah, I get Uncle Patrick's 286 board games. <laughs> <laughs> You're wrong. But they made the heirloom edition. I guess I could see where like, oh, an uncle plays games and the nephews love going over there to play games with with a good old Uncle Scott, right? Mm-hmm. This thing was three hundred fifty dollars. Yes, three hundred fifty. Yes. You want to tell you, like, okay, Foundations of Rome is a great game, but it got a little bit of flack for being what, like 150 bucks. Oh, this is overproduced, right? <laughs> the gameplay doesn't match the price. $350. This thing is, is close enough to tic-tac-toe. <laughs> it is a very light game. I couldn't believe that, but I do enjoy Sorrow. It really is. I think you nailed it whenever you said it's a modern classic. The rules are elegant in its execution of how you play it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I could understand that. If the price point was a little bit lower, yeah. I could get into that heirloom edition there, but... Yeah, it was. It was. A Wait, no, no, no. I got to ask you. What do you when you say a little bit lower? How much would you pay for the heirloom edition of Suro? I, I want to give I me a go, number. I would go up as high as a hundred bucks for that. Okay, okay. I was gonna say I can't. Now, granted, the craftsmanship and whatnot. I'm sure it dictates a, a oh, yeah. heftier price. But given the gameplay, that that was kind of my thought too. Like. It's almost like having a really nice chess set, and some of those sell for absurd yes. amounts of money. So I, I guess. I guess it's justifiable. Mm. So that was my experience with Soro. You got one more here. Yeah, one that we both played. A 2022 game from Sam Stockton, published by BA Games, called Cult of the Deep. Well, with a name like Cult of the Deep, you know what that means. It's time to put on your cultist cap and start chanting. Cult of the Deep (laughs) gives four to eight players hidden roles in the, the magical world of Lovecraft's Cthulhu. No, wait, 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 wait. You never say the magical world of H.P. Lovecraft. No, no, it's the magical world of H.P. Lovecraft. There's there's no rainbows and sunshine and Lovecraft stuff. You can't say magic. Friendship is magic. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, we got to play this one at Origins in, uh, geez, we had like a meeting of the minds there. I kind of felt like I had imposter syndrome with some of the folks we were playing with. But uh, Call to the Deep is going to give four to eight players, as I mentioned, hidden roles. This is a game where you get your role and it's kept secret uh, except for the high priest. One player is going to be the high priest. What's everybody else doing? Well, you have opposing cultists who are trying to kill the high priest. That makes up the bulk of the other players. You have a faithful cultist who's trying to protect him. And you have the role of the heretic who just wants to see the world burn. If everybody dies, that heretic wins. Some men just want to watch the world burn. That's the hidden role setup. And if you've played Bang or Bang the Dice game, you already have a pretty good idea of of what's going on as far as the hidden roles go. 
Now everybody's going to get a character. Uh, I was the alchemist. Do you remember who you were? I think I was one of the cultists. Okay, okay. Well, no, no. Beyond just the cultist, the heretic, on top of your hidden role, you also get a character card, like the hunter, the alchemist, that sort of thing, that gives you your own personal ability unique to you. So I might be a heretic one game, and I drew the alchemist, so I'm going to be an alchemist heretic, or I might be the high priest with the alchemist card. So there's there's two different variables at play, depending on your character. These character cards are going to give you an ability that's unique to you, and some have like potential triggered abilities as well throughout the game. Unique to the Cult of the Deep, though, is the three boards in the middle of the table, which house various deep ones and monsters. These beings have a number of hit points that can be reduced, and whoever slays them gets to receive the bonus granted by the card on it. And let me tell you what, these aren't rinky-dink abilities. <laughs> these no, are no. game changers. Turns are going to be carried out Yahtzee style, using custom dice that have various symbols on them. And if you don't know what Yahtzee style means, well, Paul, we should clarify that. <laughs> Yahtzee style means you roll your dice, and then you can re-roll some or all of them, your choice, then do it again, and then finally a third time if you so choose. Most straightforward of these symbols that you might roll are a dagger and a double dagger. You can designate them to other players and deal them damage or the cards in the middle of the table. There's also symbols which are going to correspond to your character card ability, which you can designate that die face to yourself and you can activate your own card. There's other symbols that allow you to attack those cards in the middle also to weaken them, but it's only the person who kills them entirely that gets the benefit of the card, but sometimes you have reason to weaken them anyway. Uh, we had one card in our play, the Kraken, which while it was out, the high priest had to take 1d4, roll a four-sided die each turn, and take that much damage until the Kraken was destroyed. So if you were trying to protect the high priest, well, you might not be able to fully kill the Kraken, but you can at least weaken it. Yeah, right. someone else is going to finish it off and get the card, but yeah, the game incentivized you. Obviously, if your role in this situation is the high priest or protect him, you want it dead. Play is going to continue from one player to another until a victory condition is met. And they are. If the high priest is killed, the traitor cultists win. If the high priest lives, then the high priest and the faithful cultists win. On the other hand, if everyone dies or only the heretic lives, then the heretic wins. Scott, what do yes. you think about Cult of the Deep? It was played at an unfortunate time of night. And <laughs> I mean that in the best way as that... This is one that you really want to pay attention to. It's not one that you can just kind of play haphazardly and not really pay attention. Which is odd because bang the on. dice game is definitely a just throw throw some dice, beer and pretzel style. This this definitely builds on it, doesn't it? Yeah, and we were like you said, we were in this media room with so many people talking and all these things going on, and it was one of those times where we were trying to talk with people and do these things and do this, do that, play this game. And it was an unfortunate victim of the environment we were in at the time. Okay, looking okay. back at it now and looking back at the pictures, it does evoke such a feeling and a mood. Everything is so well produced with the metal coins and the different colored dice. Oh, yeah. All the different things that you have to play and how everything intertwines. The hidden role part of the game, it doesn't overwhelm the gameplay. It's not the main part of that, but still it has enough in there that flavors how you want to play this. So this is one I would definitely like to play again in a different environment and get a, a better feel for it. What I were think your this thoughts would work out. What did you like? 
Well, I think, first of all, just to respond to you, I think this would work out beautifully at one of our meetups. Like, we could get seven people playing this. It's not going to be like, oh, man, that's going to take half the meetup to play that one game. You know, right. a whole lot of people around the table. It's engaging. I did like that. Well, you know what? I'll start with the art and the components. You started to mention it well, with the metal coins and whatnot. It is well done. And if the theme is something that you enjoy, the art style does evoke it. You weren't kidding. All in all, this was an easy teach that built on the system that we find in Bang and Bang the Dice game, most specifically. I don't know many gamers who don't like Bang. So I think this is an easy next step. The only hang-up that I can imagine for some folks is that Bang takes all of 10 minutes. I mean, I've played a right. game of, of Bang the Dice game that, like, it was literally two rounds. Everybody just shot the sheriff, and uh, and that was the <laughs> end of it. Call to the Deep runs 45 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on your player count, of course. Mm -hmm. It does take a little bit longer to suss out the roles here than it does in some of the simpler, uh, we'll say, hit-and-roll games. But I can see some finding this lengthy for its style of play. Uh, our play, we were getting up towards an hour, and a friend of the show kind of nudged me and asked if I thought the game was feeling a little bit long. Now, uh, personally, I was enjoying myself, and I was just fine going to the end. But I tell you what, I was the heretic, so I wanted to see everybody die, but I botched the game pretty good. You can't let the high priest die first. It's okay to have the high priest die so long as the high priest isn't the first to be killed. Because mm -hmm. if that's the case, the cultists win. And I'll be honest, it was late, as you mentioned, and I forgot that. So, <laughs> so I was like, oh, people keep on punching the high priest. I'm like, well, this is great for me. It was not. And I promptly lost because of it. And the cultists got the win in our game. We went for about an hour. But I do have to wonder what might have happened if a cultist died first. Would we have had another 10 minutes? Another 30 minutes? I don't know. But I did enjoy the play. Uh, the, no final judgment or anything. This this whole discussion, this is a first impression. But I do think right. that if you like hidden roles and you want a system with more meat on the bones, I think you're going to want to check out Cult of the Deep. It falls in nicely between Bang and getting into something like Battlestar Galactica. All right. I like the trumpeter now. It, it, it's pretty hey, we've, cool. we've turned a corner. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. We're getting it. almost to two years, and I'm starting to like the guy. I like it. Well, let's see how you feel about some of the changes in our top 100 updates. Scott, we've got a lot to talk about. Prime movers. Uh, when I say prime movers, these are games that moved up multiple slots or down multiple slots. In this case, Cascadia is up five to number 72. Falling Stars. These are games that moved down more than one spot. In this case, Kingdom Death Monster down three spots Ooh. to number 56. I don't know that that's an indictment on that game. That's, that's sort of a cult following kind of oh, game. Yes. And I think it you know, there aren't many people diving into it at this point. So the folks that have played it love it and it's not getting new ratings, whereas other things are just passing it. It's not that it's losing value or losing popularity. It's just that other things are coming out to sort of bump it down a little bit. I mean, people are kind of moving on with their life thinking that they backed it back in 2005 and just received their copies <laughs> like uh, two years ago or something. So. My brother asked me every year, he's like, so what do I get you for Christmas? And I'm like, Kingdom Death Monster. <laughs> so the one year he's like, that costs way too much money. I'm thinking more like a $10 item. <laughs> Scott, we got a new face in the top 100. It's Sleeping Gods up to number 98. And it on its way in, it bumped Russian Railroads out. It's kind of funny. We've had like Russian Railroads and Decrypto kind of dancing right there. They're bobbing in, bobbing out. In this case, Russian Railroads out because Sleeping Gods is in at the number 98 spot. Mm, all right. 
tell you about some top 10 trends. Gloomhaven and Terraforming Mars, they keep doing their dance between number four and five. <laughs> they flip, flop, flip, flop, and they did it again. This time, Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion is at number four, Terraforming Mars at number five. But somebody else's dance in Star Wars Rebellion goes up one to number seven, and Gaia Project down one to number eight. But we have a new game in the top 10, and I'll Ooh. give you three guesses what it is, but you should only need one. Oh, wow. That <laughs> Thanks for the pressure there. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, um, I, th- I think it has two words. Yeah, it does. Uh, I think it has something to do with Noah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ark Nova. Uh, Ark Nova? The top 10 at number nine. And it is one of the winning movers this week. Let's talk new highest peaks. These games are higher than they've ever been. Ark Nova at number nine. Eclipse, second on for the galaxy, up to 28. Barrage, which we still haven't played, is up to number 39. Mm-hmm. The Crew, Mission Deep Sea at 59. Cascadia, as we mentioned, at 72. Kanban EV keeps climbing. It's at 85. And newcomer to the top 100, Sleeping God, sits at number 98. Two birthdays. And they're actually kind of older ones and from the same designer odd i hadn't noticed that before maracaibo two years and mombasa mm-hmm. six years no. very cool now seeing that we're going back six years i think we need to uh, talk about one other game here that's very oh. important we need to go in a time warp of what we did a year ago oh, well, whenever gotta- we reviewed it and we talked about raiders of the north sea Wait, why do you bring this up now? We haven't done our review yet. You're right. I messed up. <laughs> Let's get on with the review. We're going to talk a little bit about Veiled Fate. When school ends for the summer, Jerry Garner's parents send him to Camp Hope, a weight loss camp for boys. Initially reluctant, Jerry meets enthusiastic camp counselor Pat and befriends other campers who've smuggled in enough junk food for the entire summer. The first night at Camp Hope brings the revelation that the original owners, the Bushkins, have declared bankruptcy, and the camp has been bought by fitness entrepreneur Tony Perkis Jr., who plans to transform the camp's weight loss program into a best-selling infomercial. Tony Perkis, played by Ben Stiller... Sometimes professionality is just out the window. You grab the wrong script. Here. Here. Start over. Thank you, King. Designed by Austin Harrison, Zach Dixon, and Max Anderson, published by IV Studios in 2022, Veiled Fate is a strategic deduction game for two to eight players. In a game of Veiled Fate, players influence various demigods, sending them on quests and earning them points, secretly attempting to have their demigod win the game. All right, adventurers, let's start like we often do. Let's set the table. The main board is a big round board consisting of seven locations, six of which simply house quests, while the seventh houses the abyss. The center of the board features the city, where each of the nine demigod minis are placed at the start of the game. Next up, each player is dealt a demigod card. This is kept secret, and it shows which demigod you want to see win the game. Quest cards are dealt to each location at random, and each player receives a hand of five influence cards. Now, turns in Veiled Fate are really quite simple. You simply perform two actions. You can move a demigod, or you can use a special power, and that's basically it. Let's start with movement, because that's going to clarify the quests and scoring points. When you move a demigod, you can move any demigod, not just your own, to an adjacent location. Most often, you'll be moving them to a location that has a quest card, and in doing so, you play one of the cards in your hand to influence the outcome of that quest. A quest card simply has spaces onto which players place demigods, and when the spaces are all full, you resolve the quest, 
flipping up those influence cards to determine which wins. So if a quest has three spaces, by the time three demigods are on it, there will also be three influence cards. The quest has positive or negative effects for each god, depending on those influence cards. So when resolving the filled up quest card, you simply shuffle up the stack of influence, and you add an additional card from the deck, sort of like a wild card, and then you flip them over to see which wins. In the event of a tie, you flip the fate coin. Now this is pretty simple, as influence cards contain either one or two feathers or one or two scorpions. The strategic play is sending your demigod to a location that has benefits regardless of the outcome, feathers or scorpions. Or if you send it to a location that has good or bad outcomes, you play your influence card for the good. That sums up quests and the movement option, but I mentioned you can use a god power on your turn as well. These are shifty powers that everyone has access to. In fact, player aids are dealt out at the start of play to show what they are. Basically, they're actions that are a tad more powerful, but they cost extra cards from your hand, and in some cases, they might give away which demigod you're secretly controlling. Some powers include the ability to add extra influence to a quest, switch the location of two demis, or even portal across the board. At the start of a round, new quests are dealt to locations, players get a new hand of five cards, and play is going to continue. After three rounds, players reveal their secret demigod card, and whoever controls the highest scoring demi wins the game. Now before we get on with the breakdown, there are two game-changing factors that I want to include in the walkthrough. First, there are age cards, one for each of the three rounds of play. These typically have effects that are going to alter that round a little bit, or potentially help you suss out which demigods are being controlled by other players. Second, the city space in the middle of the board, it has a revealed city card on it, outlining what happens to the next demigod that enters there. Like, the next demigod that enters the city gains a point, or whoever moved a demigod to it gets to draw an extra influence card. The point is, don't forget, while you're secretly rooting for one demigod to win, all players can move any demigod, and there's usually reason to do so. Okay, adventures, with that, lace your boots up tight. It's time for the 8-bit breakdown of Veiled Fate. Looking upon the world, you see nine demigods before you. You know which one is your offspring, but their identity is known to no other. Maneuvering all the demigods on quests and providing distractions for them to succeed or fail will keep your offspring's identity secret until the moment you strike. Reveal your role too early, and you will be a feast for the crows. Wait until the right moment and ascend to your proper place upon the throne. Adventurers, we like to break things down into eight bits, it's... like the old arcade games. Um... So, we are going through our eight-bit breakdown of Veiled Fate. Our first bit is art and components. Patrick, what did you think of those? Ooh, get in the floor. Well, Scott, first off, we should note that we were playing with the deluxe version, which means that we had miniatures instead of standees. The fate coin in the game that you flip for tiebreakers, that was metal, and it had like the, the colored enamel on, on the on each side of it, right? That was pretty sweet. Yes. You know what? Melissa kept flipping that thing onto the table, like right onto the board for really yes. high up. And I was like, this is gonna be denting the board. <laughs> And I loved it. You told her, hey, wait, try not to hit the board. Yeah, try and catch oh, it in your okay. hand. <laughs> she flips it the next time, hits the board. <laughs> oh, my. So we did have the deluxe version. The board's an assembled circle. The iconography on it is pretty intuitive. But you know what? There isn't much art to be had here. 
You've got some kind of abstract art on the locations on the board. And I think the rule book has one silhouette picture in it. And that's about it. Yeah. I really like the board. The board was big and round. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like you were really confined to a small space. It did take a, up a pretty big piece of real estate, but still the artwork was very angular, very almost like I want to say like hieroglyphics almost. So it really had its own flavor to it. And I think that added to the whole flavor of the game in itself. I agree. I wish maybe the quest cards. You have those big terror-sized quest cards. Yes. I kind of wish they were just slightly bigger and had a little bit of art, something to evoke a little bit more flavor. But you know what? I don't think Veiled Fate's trying to win anybody over with the artwork presentation. It's more an iconography. And frankly, it still feels like a deluxe experience. No complaints about the quality of the components or the artwork in that box. No, 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 no. The second bit is our theme and immersion. You are trying to keep your role secret. Mm -hmm. You are trying to get your god above all the other gods. I don't know if I really felt immersed in it, but still, it was a fun time. What were your thoughts? Yeah, you got a deduction game of sorts here. Uh, Well, a hidden information game, if you will. Uh, Thematically, we're influencing various demigods attempting to have our secret demigod reach the most points, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of theme in the god powers that each player has access to. Like, I can smite somebody else's demigod to the abyss. That's kind of cool, but in the gameplay itself – it feels more like a mechanical action as opposed to an immersive exercising of power. Yeah, yeah. Thematically, every action makes sense and they're named in a thematic way, but some games have a real knack for putting me in the shoes of the characters and I wasn't getting that here. What I was getting immersed in was the meta of the game. Guessing who's controlling which demigod, why players are making the moves that they're making – In that way, I I think the immersion was implemented successfully. But does the theme come out? Kind of. But really, Mm -hmm. it's a mechanical game where you're trying to deduce who's doing what and why. Right. And I think this leads beautifully into my thoughts here on the next bit of complexity. Oh, what'd you think? And the complexity, I don't think it was really complex in the rules, but it was complex in the decisions you were kind of forced into Mm -hmm. where you had the quest that came up and different things like that. So it was more along the lines of how you were going to react to what came up and what you were going to play, not really in planning ahead your moves that far ahead. You were keeping an eye on like the, the hidden information, trying to figure out who was who and you're playing the game, but it wasn't something that you had. All right. In five moves, I should be able to win this game. Right. Right. There wasn't much calculating. Exactly. You were thrown into the decision. So the complexity came more in the decision-making than it did in the gameplay itself. Right, right. And it's a fairly straightforward game. And you have two actions on your turn, and often you're simply going to do a move action twice or move two Mm -hmm. different demigods once each. You have the demigod powers to play with, but they're the same for everyone. And you have a player aid outlining what they are, so it's not like anybody's going to get held up on that. The city in the middle gives players reason to push demigods out of the abyss and back into the fray, namely because it allows for card draw and, and little benefits. But aside from that, it does a fine job of not letting complexity muddy the waters of the deduction game that's at hand. 
Mm-hmm. You did right, mention though, right. like sometimes it feels like you're forced to make a play, and I did point this out in the walkthrough. I said, "Well, on your turn, you can make movement. That's that's fine. So if I'm controlling the red god and I move it to a quest, so long as that quest isn't full, filled up with demigods, I can't move the red demigod off of that quest with a regular movement action. So if I'm controlling red, well, I moved red to the quest to where I want it to go, and it's back to my turn. What do I do? What am I supposed? Mm. I guess I pick two other gods and I could put them on a quest in a bad spot, hoping that I'm hurting someone. Maybe I pick the purple god and I put it in a benefit spot, thinking, oh, now everybody's going to think I'm purple. Oh, but then what if somebody else at the table is purple? I just help them. You know what I mean? That's where the complexity lies in, in trying to figure out what to do after you've made the fairly straightforward move with your own demigod. Now, the learning curve in rulebook, that is our bit number four. Mm-hmm. Now, I got the learning curve part of it. Okay. Like you said, it was pretty simple to pick up on. But you have really gotten very, very uh, structured and talented at learning the rulebooks and teaching people how to play oh, there. Well, thank so, you. <laughs> what were your thoughts on the rulebook? Well, let me start on the learning curve just to respond to you. I don't think that anybody's going to have an issue figuring out the game. I think sometimes with the deduction game, you get people like blank face at the table. They're like, well, why would I do that? Why would it like, it's hard to connect the dots. Like in my example with complexity where I, okay, I moved the red God to the quest where it's supposed to go. And then it comes back to me. Well, what am I supposed to do? That mm. might hold someone up. Uh, but other than that, this, this is an easy game, right? Right. Rulebook. It was about as thorough as I've ever seen. And this thing's got a bunch of pages, but it's basically because they had this really nice big print and some examples throughout. I learned this one from the rule books, gotten literally zero questions or edge cases moving forward. You've got some modified six to eight player rules, which in that case, basically you have a teammate, as well as a simple glossary in the back for any terms you might be reminded of. How about this? Mm-hmm. There, there's apparently like there's these little moon symbols all throughout the rule book. Apparently, right. there's a hidden message in those moon symbols, and okay. I can't seem to decode it. Like it'll have the title "Veiled Fate," and underneath it, there's there's like a lineup of moon symbols, and they kind of look like letters. But it might be one of those like every time you see this symbol, assign this letter to it. I, I don't know. I right. didn't put that much time into it. I was, I was just trying to find someone who did all the decoding so that I could share. <laughs> but hey, if you get veiled fate, keep an eye on those moon symbols. And if you know what they mean when you decode them, please share it with us. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Ovaltine? A crummy commercial? All in all, no complaints with the rule book whatsoever. Bit number five, the meat of the game. You have six spots around the board mm-hmm. where you're trying to keep your god figure in place, where you're moving your player marker in order to see who's going to be in first place. So the interesting thing with this is that every time that you would move into it, you would move to the head of the line of the player markers. Mm-hmm timing that out so that you would be ahead of everyone else and not behind everyone. So it was that was a tricky part there that I really enjoyed that I thought was more of the meat of the game there. Timing things out so you were in the lead instead of just 
part of the pack. Interesting. You went next step with that. I guess there are nine demigods in this game and they're going to be scoring points and there's going to be several on the same scoring spot. Two, three, four points. Mm -hmm. You're going to have multiple gods. Are you saying that you thought that a lot of the, like the game is simple enough that a lot of the meat of the game comes in timing. If there's the purple god at six points and I'm the red god at five and I score a point, I go to the front of the six scoring space. Thus, I am ahead of purple. However, if I was at the at the six point first, and then purple scored a point, purple would be ahead of. So you're saying that you thought that the timing of the scoring and found a lot of uh, yeah, lot of it wasn't like everyone is at six, so you all have six points. It's a tie. No, it was in the timing as if you were in five, you came up to six, you just skirted right past everyone else and cut in line right in the front. Well, I'm going to rewind then. I, I'm going to say that the meat actually is in uh, attempting to guess who's controlling which demigod and trying to situate yours into positions where you can score points. You can play the entire game and never accurately guess who's controlling what color. Right. You could still walk away with the window. Mm-hmm. But if you're obviously making moves that benefit one demigod, other players are likely going to figure that out and they're going to start smiting you. You don't want that to happen. Uh, I love that you can swap positions of two minis on the board. One of the, one of the demigod powers is you can discard cards to swap positions. So if I suspect Mike is orange and I'm a couple of points behind, I might just wait until he takes a quest spot that has points on it, no matter what the result of the influence cards mm-hmm. and quickly swap positions. I love – now, it's kind of a tell. <laughs> like, oh, wait, why'd you move me? And I didn't even have to say, oh, it's because I'm red. You know, Maybe he'll suss that out, but I can just be like, I think you're the orange god, so I'm doing this. Ha-ha. You also have that smite ability, which I mentioned. It lets you send someone to the abyss. Uh, I didn't walk over it in the walkthrough, but basically when a, god, when a demigod's put into the abyss, it's going to put them a few moves away from joining a quest again. It's sort of a temporary setback. You don't want it to happen to you because it's going to set you back a little bit, but it's not game over if if you're smiting, smitten, smite, smited? Smitten. Smitten? Smitten. Ah. <laughs> or smote. Yes, smitten is if you're smitten with somebody. Smote is whenever the past tense of smite. Let's move on to replayability and variability. (laughs) Scott, they give us some variables in those city cards and the round event cards. That's where we're going to find variables here. Round events, they can be pretty influential, like looking at a number of the cards for the demigods who aren't in the game, make it easier Mm -hmm. to figure out who's who. The city cards, though, while they're different, they all function in similar fashion. I don't think any of them are going to drastically change your play. It's just going to give you a little bit of a tactical decision on when to move a demigod back into the city. What happens is, like, if I move a god into the city, it's not like I get something. Sometimes it is. I get to draw a card. But sometimes it's whatever god moved into the city plus a point or minus a point. So there's actual ways to influence the game based on the next thing that happens on the city card. It's got like six little spaces mm-hmm. and there's a tracker. And every time a god moves into the city, you move the tracker to the next space and you resolve what it does. And sometimes that can be very, very tactical. But the variables in the game, they come from the round events and the city cards. Other than that, it's totally the people that you're playing with. Absolutely. I mean, I agree completely with that. The replayability, I think that there is a finite number of times you can replay this. I hate to say this, it's not going to be labeled as one of a new classic or anything, but it's a great game to play. So even though I'm not wowed by how much I can play this game, it's still a good game that if someone said, hey, let's play Veiled Fate. I'm in. I'm going to definitely play that. You know, it kind of falls uh, into that category of an event game. 
Like when we play this, it's a special event kind of like it sounds That's to me like you're not breaking it. this out weekly or anything. And neither am I. But there's going to be those game nights where it's like, oh, this would be a perfect night for Veiled Fate. Exactly. We have the right people here that are going to have a good time with this. Let's get everyone together to play this game. That's a great way of defining it. Our bit number seven, I always feel bad about this one. Now, bit number seven is the downsides. What did you think about downsides with this game? Well, I mentioned the limited variables. That's kind of a thing, but the game doesn't need to shine based on the variables. Scott, I don't know about you, but I found it really hard to determine which demigod each player was controlling. Like, there's there's enough smoke screens to put up in the form of moving random other demigods from time to time. Mm-hmm. Any given player might push three to four different pieces into scoring positions. I might deduce that they're probably one of those pieces, but figuring out which one, I thought that was kind of hard. I know the number of times that I was playing that I'm pushing the other gods ahead, thinking I'm just going to push everyone out so that they have no idea who I am. And I think at the end, I don't know if anybody had any idea who I was. I think I was Odin at the end of it, I think. But Smote. But it, Smote is the past tense. Oh, very good. So Smote. <laughs> Yeah, it's difficult to really get to the point where you're figuring out who people are. Downsides also is that, once again, this does take up a lot of real estate. There's a lot of room. You have This is not one that you're going to pop up at a coffee shop and play it and have a good little time with a, a small bunch of mm-hmm. friends. I think this is also what you said about being an event game. This is one that you kind of have to plan for to play. This is not just a, hey. Uh, you know what? Why don't we play Veil vale Fate now? It's not going to be one that you're just going to throw out at the last moment and say, yeah, this is a good time to do it. You have to plan to have the right people to play this game. I gotta say, there's something that comes with the excitement from that fate coin going your way or the influence cards going your way. That's an exciting, like, pump your fist kind of moment. But you can't do it here, can you? You've got to kind of keep a poker face that whole time. Oh, yes. And for that matter, if a quest is resolving that you just don't care about. Here, here's another thing that's like, eh. Suppose that a quest is resolving. You've got to sometimes flip the fate coin or, or flip through those influence cards and see how it's going to resolve. If you just don't care about that because you don't have a demigod on it and you don't think that anybody – you just kind of sit there. You know, it's it's not a big mm-hmm. deal, but it is some downtime. And if you're not in many quests over the course of a game, that's going to add up. Oh, definitely. Bit number eight. Was it fun? Who's it for? I thought it was fun. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the time we had there playing it. This was, I mean, you had some of the hidden information, very simple, uh, similar to Call of the Deep earlier. Mm-hmm. But this was a much lighter version of it. I didn't think it was as deep as Call of the Deep as far as trying to make sure you knew who everyone was. Having the hidden information was a secondary thing that I was really worrying about. It wasn't the main thing. I just wanted to win. That was the main thing I wanted to do. But this is for – this is a light version of a hidden information game. It's not going to be like you're sitting there glaring at everyone sitting around the table. Who's who? It's just going to be silly good times and everything. This is for your normal game group that you have that you play with every two weeks or whatever. You might be able to introduce people that are newer to the hobby to this game. It's not that deep that it's going to be that far out of their realm of understanding. We'll call it approachable. Mm -hmm. Was it fun for you? Who do you think it's for? 
I enjoyed Veiled Fate. Uh, Scott, I was really excited to get this to the table because how much fun we had playing Moonrakers, which we reviewed right. back in episode 45. And I thought, man, if Ivy Studios could do that with their first game, I could not wait to see what Veiled Fate had in store. Now, we're comparing two really different games here, but while Veiled oh, Fate yeah. is fun, Moonrakers is just playing better. Uh, let's get that out of the way right now. Mm-hmm. That might be a reflection on the type of games that I prefer, sure. But Veiled Fate didn't have the same level of interaction, and it didn't have the same level of strategy that we find in Moonrakers. And I think that stems from – let me know if you share this thought. I can't help right. but feel like the deduction isn't as meaningful as it is in other deduction games. Like you ain't going to win because you figured someone out, and you're not going to lose because you got figured out, right? I think that's one of the main things whenever I was thinking about this is more of – a secondary function of the game. It's not the primary thing that you're trying to find who somebody is. It's like, if you find out who they are, good for you. Yeah, yeah. But the whole game's not based on finding out who that person is. Okay, well, uh, let me know if you share this thought. On the other hand, the strategic portion of the game, it's not as meaningful as we find in other strategy games. Like, this isn't going to be a Maracaibo or an Ark Nova, you know what I mean? Like, so you've got a, a kind of watered-down deduction portion, but also the strategic portion isn't quite as deep either. Yeah, I think that you nailed it on that, that I enjoyed playing it, but I didn't feel that I was really in charge of the strategy. Mm-hmm. If things happened, I was happy. But then if they didn't happen exactly the way I wanted to, I wasn't really bummed out or upset. So I've got an interesting blend of deduction and strategy. I'm not sure I'm in love. Uh, It's a solid game that I'm really interested in looking back on next year. I can't wait for the look back on this one because I want to see how much it gets played. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm still playing it and enjoying it. But I also wouldn't be surprised if this one fades away and and I don't crack the box anymore. Who's it for, though? Obviously, if you like deduction games, this is a step up in game length and to some extent complexity. If you like games where you get to chat a little bit at the table, start pointing fingers or, you know, selling used cars, this is probably a game that you're going to like. It's got a relatively easy rule set, so a low barrier of entry. Probably not in-law proofed, I wouldn't think, but easy enough no. to get more casual gamers, like you said. You you can introduce some people to this. You can crack open a beer and start playing, and I think you can have a good time with Veiled Fate. Certainly. Go today, Scott. We had the chance to review Raiders of the North Sea, a game set in the central years of the Viking Age. As Viking warriors, players seek to impress the chieftain by raiding unsuspecting settlements. To do so, players need to assemble a crew, collect provisions, and journey north to plunder gold, iron, and livestock. Glory can be found in battle, even at the hands of the Valkyrie. So gather your warriors, because it's raiding season. Let's talk a little Raiders of the North Sea. Scott, back then we were loving on this. How do you feel about it now? This is one that I have not had a chance to play again, but I would in a heartbeat. This is one that the mechanics of it were just so unique in the way I looked at it. It's almost like whenever you're making recording and you see the graphic equalizer go up and down, up and down, up and down, (laughs) in that you need to go up 
to get something, to come back down, to get something else. It's just a constant back and forth of getting resources and then going to the different buildings and getting all that stuff. It's not just building on this and then this and then to this, to this. It's just a constant back and forth in this game. I really enjoyed it. It kept my mind limber, just really bouncing around with a lot of ideas here with this game. I would really love to play this again and just haven't had a chance to. Your ideas. What were your thoughts in, with this one? I think back then I called it uh, the grilled chicken of board games. Uh, you know how you go to a restaurant and it's like, <laughs> I don't know what I want. I don't, don't know if I want to try anything crazy. I know. I'll go with Old Faithful. I'll just get the grilled chicken. I know what I'm getting. I know it's mm-hmm. going to be good. Probably not going to blow my mind, but I know I'm going to like it. And I stand by that. Raiders of the North Sea is a very engaging work placement game where you place one and pick one up. That was sort of the, the shtick. Plus, you have the workers that gain some power. You, you start with workers that have limited abilities, and then that opens up, and then that opens up even further. You can go higher up the board. Couple that with the card play, the huge stack of cards that even includes oh some, my, leaders, yes. some unique ones in there. You're going to have some variability from game to game based on the cards you draw and how you approach it. I think Raiders of the North Sea is one that if anybody out there, if you haven't played Raiders of the North Sea, give this thing to the table. I mean, we're talking a game that you can find for like 40 bucks. It's mm-hmm. beautifully produced. You have all the different shapes for the, the resources. Some of the early productions had the metal coins, just came with the right. game. Phenomenal little game. Raiders of the North Sea. Scott, are you recommending this today? Very much so. Uh, this one is, it's definitely one that deserves a place in someone's collection. It's one that may not get played as much as others. But you always want to have it there just in, within grasp that you can grab it and play it at the last minute. It's it's a wonderful game to have in your collection. Agreed. Raiders of the North Sea, it's in the top 100, sitting at number 94, and for good reason, solid game. At this point, I hope most of you have played it. If you haven't, find someone with a copy. The price is right. Just buy yourself one. You're going to like it. It's discussion time, and as we're one to do, we want to get some thoughts of the community. We took this one straight from BGG. We have a gamer here that's got a concern, and he's looking for suggestions, a a way to approach, a way to go about it. And you know what? It's one that I think you and I have some opinions on, so it's an easy one to pick out. You ready? I'm all set. Okay. So this comes from random BGG user whose name we shall not repeat. (laughs) All right, adventurers, buckle up. This user says, yes, another one of those significant other threads. I guess this could apply to friends as well. So my girlfriend is a non-gamer. A bit of a bummer. But this is not why I'm with her. It is what it is. I can deal with not gaming with her. And we went through stretches of doing just that. However, there have been times where things were boring. I love board games and I have a decent collection of suitable games. So occasionally I end up playing a game of her choice. I do try to suggest playing the easier, non-confrontational games, and we almost go with that. Again, fine by me. I just want to have a fun time with her. Unfortunately, it's also been a struggle. She's really smart. But when we play games, she has a hard time processing the overall goal and coming up with a strategy. She also doesn't recognize the tactical choices she has at a given time. When a move presents itself, she just does the most obvious thing to her. Of course, not every move is like this, but it happens a lot. For example, yesterday we played a game of patchwork, and she started grabbing tiles without any buttons, not giving her any button income at all, in fact. I'm pretty sure the better tiles were there. But even if they weren't, she almost never thinks about passing and letting me deal with the poor option. 
We played Patchwork about 15 times before, and we have subtly gone over general strategies and tactics. Sometimes she does get better, and then all of a sudden she seems to go back to zero again. Honestly, I have a hard time processing how she resets her skill level so hard. Anyway, it can result in a bad loss, and it makes her feel kind of dumb. So this has been going on for about a year and a half now. I've tried to deal with it in several ways. We've gone over that it's mostly about having fun and not about winning and that losing's a part of it. I do get that losing a few times badly does get to her, but in times like this, I try to remind her of her wins as well. I play my game and I go for the win. I do go easy on the ruthless moves and I don't put too much thought into it, but I think there's little point in playing a game if I'm just throwing it. I think that'd be disrespectful as well. I mostly do this by quickly stating the key thing that she should consider and give some slightly vague options, like the patchwork game I mentioned and the need to have a button economy after she picked two tiles that don't have any. We tried a whole range of games in this light to medium range with no clear winners that solve the issue. Her favorites are Viticulture and Castles of Burgundy. I also tried co-op games, but those weren't too much her thing. They're also a bit challenging with our dynamic. You can only not alpha so much if you're blatantly losing by giving moves too little thought. Like I stated before, we also just tried not to play at all, and we do other things as well. But sometimes you just have a few Netflix evenings in a row or just days with bad weather. Not playing also reinforces her notion that she's too stupid for this kind of thing. And yes, of course, I do my best to diffuse that the best I can. I don't really ask to play games in times like these, but then she'll ask to play something. So after I say I'm okay with not playing, we end up carefully trying again, and it's fun for both of us, and it can go quite well, but sooner or later, it's back to the same thing. So yeah, not really sure what I'm asking for, just your points of view. This seems to be a cycle we're in that I feel like somehow we need to give a break. Give up completely, no matter what, and deal with whatever happens, or carefully keep trying and potentially deal with occasional fallout. These seems to be the options as far as I can see. Well, Patrick, uh, that was mm-hmm. mouthful. Yeah, he's got got some issues going on here. Yeah. Um. Now, I don't like to be that guy. I really don't. Uh-oh. Scott's gonna be that guy. I'm gonna be that guy. Um. I just really think that they're going at it all wrong. Oh. It feels like they are trying to groom the person into their perfect girlfriend slash soon-to-be wife, maybe, or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, that should not be part of a relationship. You should not be trying, looking at things that there's a deficit in their game playing. Well, I Mm -hmm. need to bring them up to my level in order to play better. I, I just don't feel that at all. There are more than enough things to do in this world that you can find something that you both like to do. You can do statements right off the bat. You can do a lot of things on your own. You can go, you can hang out with your gaming group and play with them. She can go do her thing and go have fun. You can come together and do things. Uh, All right. Uh, Maybe I'm getting on my soapbox right now. <laughs> Jumping the gun. I love it. Let's start here. Let's dissect yes, this a little yes. bit. So we, we have significant other is a non-gamer, but occasionally will play. This significant other makes very poor moves despite an apparent attempt to improve. Number one, Number two. I got to say, I take offense at that comment. <laughs> Adventures, I'm constantly trying to get Scott to improve. 
Oh, and, and, and it's just like, let them play their game. If it's not what you think is the most optimal move, let them play their game. They're doing what they want to do. Well, number two, significant other gets upset when they lose. That's a factor that we're getting into with this topic. And number three, it sounds like the original poster is trying to figure out whether or not to keep trying or to give up. So how about we, we break down some thoughts here, Scott? Can we relate to the? Uh, can you relate to this person? Oh, very much so. Yes. Uh, my wife- Will you get Heather at a game from time to time? I, I will get her to play from time to time. Yes. But I don't sit there and judge like sit there and like i enjoy my time talking with her and playing the game i'm not going to sit there judging her move and that's what i feel this person is doing in that there's a, oh that was not an optimal move they should be doing well, this there's a return in in the gameplay that like the excitement that you get out of it is, is like in the Magic the Gathering days you you know it's you're only as good as the people that you're playing against. I'm not saying that he's trying to improve, but let's just let's water it down. Let's let's go very basic. If you're playing tic tac toe with someone and they always start, you know, you do the exact same opening every time. Tic tac toe is a solvable game, and you know, mm-hmm. everybody can figure it out and have mastered it within three plays. What if you're on your 30th or your 300th play and they keep continually making this same error? Doesn't that kind of take away from the joy of playing tic-tac-toe with that person for you? Well, like you're winning, but who cares because they're not like it, it comes off as though they're not even trying, doesn't it? Well, I would look at that maybe around play 100. I would figure <laughs> that that person does not care for that game. I would not bring up that game again. To play with said person. Okay, okay. So in this, uh, this. <laughs> oh, I got him going. Oh my god, Th- this whole topic just really has me worked up. In and it's what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. Well, okay. If well, you do it over it and over, like- and you're expecting the person to get better, and they aren't. That you're just guiding yourself into an insane position there. Oh, what if that person gets upset when they loot? Like the the poster made it a point to say that my significant other actually gets upset when they lose at the game, and yet they're not improving. Man, what a cycle we have here! Well, bring up a new game. It's not <laughs> like we're in a drought of games. There are thousands upon thousands of different games to play out there. Bring up a different game. Find out what they like. Go with what their strengths are. If there's something that they, a hobby that they enjoy, if they enjoy planting, hey, Mm -hmm. why don't you figure out a game about planting? If they enjoy science, hey, why don't we bring up something, uh, search for Planet X or terraforming Mars? There might be something in there that triggers another one of their likes instead of just looking at that one game. I'll say I can not really personally relate to this either. You know, maybe personally relate to it in that we, you know, I don't game with my wife that often, but the reason why I can't say that I can relate to it is because she she usually beats me (laughs) when we play a game and I actively try to win. I might be a little bit off on that in that if I know that I'm really good at a game and I'm playing it with my wife, Mm -hmm. I may take down my game a little bit. I may not go for the kill. Yeah, she normally does beat me, but 
she's really good at that one aspect of playing there where I might not see something where I'm trying to figure out how to explain something and make the game more inviting to her. So Mm -hmm. I may be Mm -hmm. trying to make everything a great environment for her to make her want to explore more games that I might not look at the great move to make in order to win. I'm taking that she's taking that time to give me to play a game with me. I'm going to give her the chance to see what I enjoy in the game and see if that's something that she enjoys. I don't want to just tear it down to just the mechanics of the game, but make it an experience of playing the game. Well, we'll share a few more ideas on this, but first, let's go over some of the suggestions from responses. We each picked one. A lot of the responses had to do – okay, first up, we had a whole bunch of, dude, just give up. Mm -hmm. A significant other is a non-gamer. It ain't going to happen. There were a bunch that said, you know what, try a more luck-based game. Try games where you're rolling dice. And I think that stems from the idea that if you're playing a a skill game, if you're playing a patchwork, something that has uh, not so much randomness in it and you can actively outplay the other person, try playing a game that – it's hard to take it personally when you lose because you can say, oh, man, that dice roll really came through. Try playing something that doesn't make someone feel as though they were outplayed. Yes. I thought that was pretty good. Some suggestions, they said, you know, it sounds sound like the OP is actually enjoying this either. Uh, yeah, that's true, too. You know, like like you said, definition of insanity. At some point, it's like, well, dude, just play with your game. Group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we each hand selected a BGG response. I'm going to go with what Ray says. He says, my wife does enjoy playing from time to time, and she has a small group of games that she likes, but I try to look at playing something else that I'm dying to try from her perspective. Yes. She has to learn something of no interest when she's probably just looking to relax. She will play it, but just to get through it. And if she loses at the end, relating to that OP, then it would be more like adding an insult to injury and feel like a complete waste of time. A good cornerstone is that the large majority of things that we gamers love, like getting and learning games and the decision space within, most non-board gamers abhor that. Yes. Ray says Monopoly is still very popular because it's already acquired most of the time. They don't have to learn it, and there really isn't strong decision-making to be had Mm -hmm. within. I've learned many of these things the hard way, and I always want to share it to help both hobbyists and those they love. I thought Ray kind of hammered it there, especially with relating it to Monopoly. You know, why why do people play games that we hobbyists go, oh, that, that's not a good game? It's because they already know it. They don't have to put a whole lot of thought into it. And quite frankly, you know, I've always thought I'm a board gamer because my mind has to constantly be going. Right. Like, I, I can't sit still. I rarely watch TV shows. Uh, I, I always got to have the gears turning to some extent. And you know what? Not everyone's like that. Mm-hmm. You know, some people like going to the beach. Some people would just sit, have a beer, and sit there and listen to the ocean for three hours. And that is the best thing they can imagine. To me, I would feel like I'm wasting my time. Right, right. You know? I'm the weirdo in that situation. In this situation, you know, quite frankly, Ray's saying, you know what, man? You're kind of the weirdo wanting to open a box, punch out pieces, read rules, dive into a mm-hmm. game. Not everyone wants to do that. I, I thought that was pretty good. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's definitely a, a plus there. And no, going and laying on the beach, I'm with you on that. If we're going to the beach, I I love kites. I'm big into kites. The bigger, the better. And I mm-hmm. will be finding a place to go out and fly kite while everyone else is just laying there doing nothing. So, yeah, I've got to be doing something. I can't just lay there and not do sure. anything. Different strokes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that he does have a great thing here with that you need to look at what you both love 
and play to the strengths of that. That's the biggest thing there. Now, if I can mm-hmm. go on here, I have one here. Absolutely. Anthony said, and I, I really like this one as well. The best way to win in this situation is to not play. Oh. <laughs> Recently, my oh. wife said to me, paraphrasing, I'm glad you have friends who like board games as much as you do. That way, I don't have to worry about it. And it was a burden off of both of us. She was worried about entertaining me and keeping me from being bored. I was worried that about finding the right game that she would love. With that removed from the relationship equation, she feels better, and I also feel happy knowing that I don't have to feel guilty or worried about doing a game night that does not include her. If the two of you don't want to just watch TV, but gaming seems to be enjoyed by just one person, I think a conversation about what you all could do as joint hobby might be positive conversation. I know a lot of times I will ask my wife, do you want to go to Origins? Do you want to go to our game night? She knows me well enough that she knows that if we're together playing a game, I'm not going to be fully focused on that game. I'm going to be sitting there making sure that she's having a good time. And that's going to take me out of any experience I have. So that's why it's okay for me to have my Thursday night to go and game. She knows mm-hmm. I have my group of people to go play games with. I get it out of my system. And she likes to sit and read and just relax and just let her mind go and not have to think about things. She's a school teacher. So she has a ton of things on her mind all the time. It's one of those things that not everyone likes the same thing. So once you remove that from the equation and you are both on the same page, you can both enjoy the things you like without any guilt. Yeah, to Anthony's point, you know, it's okay to not love the same thing. Yeah. I, I don't like fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if my wife wanted to go fishing, I might go with her every now and then just to spend the time with her, but not because I care about baiting the hook and watching the bobber at the top of the lake. No, I'm, I'm doing it because, well, I'm doing something that she likes. We're having together time. Right. Maybe for the original poster here, that's sort of what Anthony is suggesting. You know what? It's plausible that she's doing this just to spend some time with you and have a, have a nice evening together, not because she cares about the mechanisms and strategy within the game. Right, right. She just wants to spend time with you. You need to treat those as special moments and not get offended if they don't like the same things as you do. Right. Scott, let's talk about some suggestions that we might have. We, we shared a little bit of the community response. We shared some of our thoughts. Let's go over some, some ideas that we have. If, if OP is in the room with us, what are we telling them? Well, one of the ones here, and this is a big one that I know has worked well for my wife and I, is trying co-op games mm-hmm. where you're both working together against the game. That way you aren't getting your mind set and then there's going to be that chance of upset where one person wins and one person loses. You both win or you both lose. You are getting a chance to get your game on, but then also Mm -hmm. they might be just being able to have that quiet time and spend time with you. That's important with them. Absolutely. Right in that same vein, I said, try playing a game with a group instead of just each other. Having the pair of you with three or more people can make it less personal in a competitive game. Like, oh, I'm not just straight up losing to my significant other. Mm -hmm. No, we're all part of the same. Now, I will say, 
anytime I get Chrissy in a game, if she has the option to attack somebody, it's going to be me. Like there is some fun <laughs> back and forth. Uh, but no, seriously, if you're in in a multiplayer game, then suddenly it, it's it's not as one-on-one like you versus me. Who's better, right? And that's the same thing with the co-op games. Take away the take away that personal side. The oh, geez, you know, I got I got outplayed, or, or you know. put another way, yeah. The significant other in this situation, they're not reading forums on Board Game Geek. No, they're not thinking about strategy in the game whenever the game is over. You know what I mean? Like they're this, not this thinking of the designer that you're really excited. Like, oh my God, we're going to play the new Feld game. This is going to be amazing. Exactly. Take some of those personal stakes out of it because they're not thinking of that. Make it something that do, do your best to make it a, a camaraderie, a, a group activity, a co-op game, something that says, you know what? You're going to be a part of this. You don't have to be completely divulged in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, very much so. Another one here is don't make your hobby their hobby or mm. our hobby because it's important. People need to have their own little thing that they fall into whenever they feel overwhelmed or they feel lonely, they feel down, whatever you want to do. They want to have that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Just because something is your comfort zone doesn't mean it's going to be someone else's. This really goes so much bigger than just playing board games. It really goes into a relationship thing here of reading the other person in the room. What do they like? What don't they like? If that relationship is important, you need to be able to take that in consideration. Well, we'll close it up with what I said, my legit number one recommendation. My wife actually, she's like, what's your discussion today? Because I was sitting down here prepping and she looked over at the BGG forum. She's like, what is this all about? <laughs> and I explained our discussion. She's like, how about talk to her or him if that's your situation? And I was like, oh, yeah, communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not always as easy as that. I mean, in this situation, yeah, it'd be like, look, you're dumb. <laughs> you know, like I, they, I understand that it's, I need to, to tread lightly with how I, I go about having this this talk. But, yeah, talk to her. Talk to your – you know, hey, what do you like about the game? What don't you like about the game? Do you want yeah. to try this one? Like, keep that communication open. That's the best way. That's a great way of you going through your library in your mind thinking, well, maybe she might like this game the next time. All right, Scott, I think we covered most of what we have to say. Uh, sum it all up for us. Well, number one, don't make your hobby into theirs. That's the sure. biggest thing there. Everyone has to have their own hobby, their own interests. Don't force your interests on someone else. Second, mm-hmm. communication is key. You need to be able to talk with someone. Don't let it sit down deep inside and fester. You really need to communicate with each other. I think uh, those two things don't make your hobby theirs and communicate. Once you do that, you understand. I mean, you aren't going to have the perfect time w- with everyone. You need to have your own lives, but you have to have your combined lives. There it is. That's the decree from the king. Huzzah! Scott, that's going to bring episode 64 to an end, but before we go, we always like to talk about how we leveled up. Oh, my goodness gracious, yes. My mind is just like, uh, just filled with relationship experience and all this other kind of stuff, (laughs) but... Leveling up, I got to level up whenever I was traveling with work. One of the main things I do is we travel to where we're going to be going, we check into the hotel, and then I get on my phone and look up 
game shops near me. It's a great experience to go out and visit these game shops that you aren't used to, these new things. And you get a chance to see what's the hot thing in, in Philadelphia. What's the hot thing in Reading? What's the hot thing in Altoona? It's great to get out there and see what other people are playing and just enjoy it. And remember, they're all geeks just like you. They just have a good time talking about their games and you can strike up a conversation with just about anyone. Go out. If you're visiting someplace, look up, find out where there's a new game store or game cafe. Pop in. It's a great thing to do. So my leveling up was getting a chance to go out and visit at least three or four of these great places as I've been traveling around. It's got to be an integral part of every trip that you take is find a FLGS and see what's going on. Scott, my level up is getting to play that game of obsession with you and Ryan at the end of Origins one evening. Uh, It's a game that he wanted to teach us. You were antsy to learn. You were having a blast with the theme. And you know what? I went in with kind of a, we'll say a lukewarm feeling on the theme and left it like, I can't believe Catherine didn't attend the tea party. I mean. Oh. It was a fantastic game, but it's not just the game. It's being able to live play a game with someone who we know via the show and we've played on TTS. I hear the voice all the time but to be able to sit down and, and chat and enjoy a game with someone mm-hmm. that you haven't met personally outside of the hobby. And for us to be able to meet someone and enjoy a game with them in person as a result of the podcast, I just think that's really cool. And I think that's that's my level up for episode 64. Yeah. Yes, that's a, an awesome way of of finishing up this episode. Adventures, go back, listen to that Origins episode last week, the wrap-up. We've got all kinds of audio from all kinds of publishers. Eventually, we're going to be doing our Gen Con look ahead. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, July 17th from 2 to 8, we'll be at the Vault in Greensburg, right behind the Westmoreland Mall next to Live Casino. Going to be a good time, bring some games, get ready to play some, eat some good food, and have some laughs. That sounds like an awesome idea. And definitely, if you have any other information that you want to share with us, hit us up on social media. Leave us uh, some voice messages so we can put it on the show. We want to hear from you. It's always about getting together with a bunch of like-minded people and just having a good time. Thanks for joining us, Adventurer Scott. Until next time. Until that time, sir, you have a good one. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember... You can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.